Hi everyone, I'm Andrew Wolk, and this is Finding Common Purpose. During each episode of Finding Common Purpose, I'll bring you candid conversations about how we build a 21st century social contract to put more people on a pathway to lifelong success. From healthy birth, to a quality education, to a good paying job. Making sure that folks know that they are safe, they have housing, they have food, they have clothes, their kids are okay. And from there, your bandwidth is now freed up and you can begin to think about some of the other pieces. That's Aisha Yandoro, the CEO of Springboard Opportunities in Jackson, Mississippi, during a conversation I had back in August 2019 about her work with residents of affordable housing. I decided to call Aisha back to see how she was doing during this crisis. She was at her home where she's been working and sheltering in place with her family since the COVID-19 crisis took hold. It's a privilege Aisha has complex feelings about, especially when she thinks about the population her organization serves. For the most part, those folks are still going to work because they have to, because they are deemed essential even though their paycheck and by virtue of how they are still having to live in really deep poverty doesn't show that they are essential. So those are, you know, the folks who are still stocking the grocery store, still driving the Grubhub and DoorDash and all of those things. So for the first few weeks of all of this, I personally struggled tremendously because when you work in the community but you're not of community and then something happens, quite frankly, overnight, um, it's like you went to bed and you woke up and the world was different, you really struggle with what your role is in that because you still are the translator. You still understand what's happening in those spaces, but at the same time, you totally understand the personal responsibility that you have to those with whom you have been charged with keeping safe by virtue of the bloodline. So it has been a very, you know, interesting space that I've wrestled with. Aisha has been wrestling with complicated issues for a long time, working to understand the systems and policies that impact vulnerable communities. And in December 2018, Aisha's organization launched a basic income experiment called Magnolia Mother's Trust to help residents meet their basic needs so they can get on a pathway to lifelong success. The 12-month pilot worked with 20 African-American mothers in Jackson who received $1,000 a month in cash no strings attached. It's the kind of work that was already getting more attention as the former presidential candidate Andrew Yang made Universal Basic Income, or UBI, a cornerstone of his campaign. And then came the coronavirus pandemic. Aisha says she's had more conversations in the last month about guaranteed income and UBI than she's had in the last three years. It's like all of a sudden people woke up and was like, oh, it's not just liberals who think this is a good idea. It actually could benefit everybody. So I think if anything, this crisis magnifies the fragility of all of America. We have been so long telling this narrative that, oh, it's just uh, brown people and people of color and black people who are poor and struggling. And what this virus has done is it has pulled back the curtains or pulled back the sheets on our dirty little secret and is that it's most of America is struggling. And so it is 
sped up the conversation and allows us to be like, okay, we really need to look at this economy and we really need to look at this thing called capitalism. And no, it's not working. It, we, so many of us have known that it's not worked for a subset of our population and has disproportionately victimized a subset of our population for so long. But the reality is that that subset is a lot larger than the majority of us realize, and we need to have some really honest conversations about that. Back when I first interviewed Aisha for my blog, Finding Common Purpose, I started by asking her about something I had seen on the Springboard Opportunities website, the phrase radically resident-driven. Aisha described a months-long effort to talk with families in federally subsidized affordable housing, to talk with them, not at them, about how to address their needs. And sitting on couches, sitting on stoops, just really learning from them directly what it was that the needs were and what was missing. And during that time, we realized that out of all the organizations or programs or strategies that existed, there was nothing that actually centered the narrative of families in that process. Um, that was first and foremost one of the pieces that we learned. And then also we realized that because of the punitive nature of so many of these institutions and systems, that individuals never had access to someone that they actually felt was on their side, quote-unquote. And it was a lot of bureaucracy, and it was people telling them what they could and cannot do. So that's when we said, okay, there's a big gap here within the field. How do we go about doing all of these things simultaneously, which is where Springboard to Opportunities got started. We pride ourselves on being radically resident-driven, and what that to us means is that we center our families in all of our programs and services that we provide, understanding that individuals know exactly what it is that they need to be successful, and it is simply our responsibility to stand in partnership with them. Any programming that we provide, our residents have said it is a need that they have, and that varies from community to community. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach because we understand that communities are different. So that could be an after-school program in one community. It could be a food pantry in another community. It could be a healthcare clinic in one community. It could be workforce development training in another, or it could be all. So that's a little bit about us in a nutshell. That's terrific. Um, I particularly love that your approach bore out of actually talking to families. You know, even the Magnolia Mothers Trust grew out of talking to families. You know, yeah. now that this entire UBI um, is getting so much uh, attention. Folks are thinking, oh, Magnolia Mothers Trust came out of the UBI movement. Magnolia Mothers Trust came out of talking to families. And then from there, I was like, okay, I need a frame to talk about this desire to give. I mean, honestly, I was like, I need a frame to talk about giving money to poor people. Okay, there's something. There's universal basic income. Yes, thank you for giving me the language. Or there's a guaranteed income or cash transfers or whatever you want to call it. Um, But all of our work comes out of talking to families. Tell me a little bit about Jackson from a demographic perspective, and then within that also, if your target population is those in federally subsidized housing, you know, what's that size look like in comparison to to Jackson, geographically, so on? Just give me a sense of who you're working with within what context of the overall city. So the families that we work with, for the most part, make less than $11,000 a year. So we're talking about individuals who are 200% below the poverty index. Springboard works in multiple spaces. So specifically with the Magnolia Mothers Trust, we're targeting families in Jackson, Mississippi, but let me do the distinction. As an organization, we are 
in multiple communities throughout Mississippi, in Maryland, and in Alabama, specifically with the trust work um, centered in Jackson. Jackson is a community of about 175,000 individuals. The median income of the city is about, I think, between $25,000, $30,000. It's a high impoverished area, you know, with flight and gentrification and, you know, more and more of the city's wealth moving towards the suburbs. So the city has a lot of the issues that you find in, you know, urban metropolitan areas. I'd love to hear in your own words, how are you, how are you thinking about basic needs? Do you guys have a definition for that? Do you have a idea? What do you hear from the community on what that looks like to them? Yeah. Um, so the way our communities define basic needs is real, it's real basic, um, is having the ability to pay all your bills at the end of the month and have something left. That's how our families define it. So that's, you know, knowing that your your kids and yourself have enough food to eat, knowing that if an emergency comes up, you know, with a school-related expense or something, that you don't have to go borrow those resources, knowing that you can pay all your bills on time, that you don't have to go to a predatory lending service to get resources or borrow money from, you know, a parent or a friend. So this is really having the ability to pay your bills at the end of the month. And tell me, tell me a little bit about how the families are thinking about having some left over at the end of the month. What is some of the thinking around that? It's like everybody wants to have a savings or have a cushion. Yep. So knowing yep. that, you know, I can put away $25 so that if next month I need that $25, I know it's there. Yeah, I think a lot of times that we are having these conversations right now in this country, and a lot of the conversations specifically are focused on wealth creation. And for us and our family, we're not even talking about wealth creation. We're just talking about income stability. So when we talk about or when our families talk about having something to put away, it is really in the simplicity of terms. Uh, having enough that I know if something, a small emergency comes up, which for most of our families, the emergencies that come up are less than $500, like if it's usually something with the car or something to that effect, knowing that I have the resources to take care of that and it doesn't uproot my life for the next year. I wonder if you could talk, expand a little bit more about the linking of basic needs to propelling long-term success and how you think about that from an income perspective. It really is just that Maslow hierarchy of needs, that if I don't have my basic needs, food, shelter, security taken care of, how do I have the bandwidth to think about some, any other pieces? Getting to the basic needs, making sure that folks know that they are safe, they have housing, they have food, they have clothes, their kids are okay. And from there, your bandwidth is now freed up, and you can begin to think about some of the other pieces. You can begin to think about, okay, how do I show up and participate more in the community? How do I show up and participate or engage more in my kids' life? How am I able to show up more in my own life? What are some of the dreams that I have for myself? How do I go about putting the steps in place to actualize those dreams? It's really hard, and I think we take this for granted, the ability and the privilege to think about living on purpose, that is a lot of privilege that it takes to have a life that is planned out and you actually have the bandwidth to execute the steps. If every day you're in this constant need of thinking about just how do I survive, how do you get to the next place of going about actual, not only actualizing dreams or even beginning to feel like that you should be empowered enough to have dreams? Let's move to the Magnolia Mothers Trust Project. and. Tell me the genesis of the project itself and describe it a bit for me. 
Yeah, so the project really came about in conversations with our our moms, our residents, um, and just trying to get a better sense of what their needs were. In a lot of instances, we had families where no cash resources were actually coming into the house, uh, whether or not because of some of the punitive aspects of the social safety net system, individuals not, not being able to take advantage of TANF because of the restrictions, and just, you know, not being able to find gainful employment because of lack of transportation or child care or, you know, a number of other barriers. So, so it really did come about, you know, if we run an organization that's radically resident-driven, if our families are telling us that they really do need access to cash, how do we go about doing that? And that's where Magnolia Mothers Trust came from. So tell me a little bit about how the project is set up right now. Um, So it's $1,000 a month for 12 months with no strings attached. There are 20 women that are involved in the pilot, and so it's $12,000 annually that for the majority of this population is doubling their income. And it's targeting women in our Jackson communities. So. Do you have any hypothesis, or are you just simply tracking to see? You know, we're what, simply what, tracking. Yeah. So yeah. we didn't go into this with the hypothesis because we knew that nothing like this had been done with a population as low income as ours, a population of you know African American women. We knew that. So yeah. So our hypothesis is that individuals should be trusted and given the resources that they need to actualize their dreams, and that in trusting individuals and giving them those resources. They'll make it happen. Eh? So that's what we went into it with. But for us, success is really the ability that we've been able to execute this pilot and that we are doing our small piece to go about changing the narrative about how low-income African-American women are viewed in this country and really dispelling that welfare queen myth because so many individuals want to just lean into that narrative that they are not to be trusted and that poverty should be criminalized, and that's not the case. And the women, you know, um, are showing and demonstrating that's not the case. They are showing up in ways that are just amazing. So I'm curious, how are you able to allow the uh, women that you're working with to interact with those programs when maybe, and I'm not sure whether this would be the case or not, but the money that they're receiving through you might actually restrict them from continuing to access certain social benefits programs? Excellent question. Um, So since our population is extremely low income, we knew that no one would actually lose benefits. We knew that benefits would be decreased. We didn't know at what level those benefits would be impacted, which is why we were clear that we needed to do $1,000 a month, which is really larger than any other UBI pilots or guaranteed income pilots are, you know, a larger sum than most of those pilots are providing right now. And for us, that $1,000 was significant because we needed to make sure we were doing no harm. We wanted to do good without doing harm. And so we wanted to make sure that families actually had the resources necessary to live out whatever dreams or put in place whatever goals or accomplish every goals, any goals that they had. But we also knew that we needed to be able to take into account um, any, like I said, any decreases in benefits. And we looked hard and long um, and worked with economists and various um experts to, you know, try to figure out what that sweet spot was um, as far as the resources that we needed to provide. And, you know, we just finally had to take an educated guess at $1,000 because of the complexities of all these different systems. That's really interesting. Um, And I'll come back to talk a little bit more about the programs in a moment, but I'd love to hear what resistance you're getting or counter arguments you're hearing to the the UBI or, or your particular experiment. 
if any. I think the counter argument is, you know, what is heard across the board when we start talking about giving individuals cash without strings. You know, folks, you know, are like, oh, can people be trusted? And how do you know they're not going to use the money to do X, Y, Z? It's all of the very negative things um, that really, quite frankly, says more about our individual beliefs than it does about the individuals who are receiving the resources. Um, and, you know, our counter narrative is there is a significant amount of data from experiments on cash transfers that have been done for years in other countries that show, you know, positive outcomes and a significant return on investment and that individuals do not use these resources to participate in quote-unquote negative behaviors, but that they do use the resources in a way to actually get to, like I said earlier, income stability, which is what we're seeing. And so, so that's the pushback, and the counter-argument is always that's not what our data is showing. Um, and so, yeah, so I always lean with the data. So I, I noticed in the write-up on the, on the Magnolia Mothers Trust project that in addition to the $1,000 that you're offering peer support, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and the individual coaching and counseling and what that looks like. So it's definitely yeah. the over-general work that we do at Springboard, but specifically with the Magnolia Mothers Trust when we were designing this program, um, the women ask for an opportunity just to continue to be able to build their networks and relationships with each other. So really wanted to have an opportunity where they could come together every month with just the moms who were in the Magnolia Mothers Trust to talk and network. And when our moms asked for it, I was like, oh, that makes sense. I have my network of other women of color EDs that I get with every month. And we just talk about whatever has happened that month or whatever we need to debrief on or whatever we're really excited about. So we have monthly gatherings that provide that, uh, which has been beautiful to see them come together and be in community with one another and celebrate and learn from each other. And then the other piece that we put in place is we have a social worker that's on staff with Springboard, but then also we're contracting with specifically for the Magnolia Mothers Trust just to provide an additional layer of support. Like I say, for a lot of these individuals, $12,000 is a life-changing amount of money. Um, And we understand that these are communities that have a lot of trauma and situations that sometimes make life a little more difficult. So just having someone that they can process and talk through those things with, uh, something that, you know, our moms felt they needed and a place that we uh, stood in agreement and wanted to support. It sounded like earlier you talked about a few examples, and I wonder if there was one or two stories you might expand upon of what you know that people have begun to use this um, no-strings-attached money for. One mom specifically, Sierra, just finished her GED. She graduated from the community college, and she's so excited. And now she's about to go back to community college to get her certification. We have another mom who finished her certification in phlebotomy, and she's now interviewing for jobs at doctor's offices, which will give her a career rather than the retail job that she's been working in for years. One of the most beautiful stories that you know we have, and I'm like, oh, my God, such a small amount of money to most folks, but how it truly is life-changing. I was one of our moms who went to see her father for the first time in over 21 years. Her father had not even met his grandkids. They FaceTime every week, but no one had had the resources to get to Philadelphia to visit in over 20 years. And so during spring break, she drove to Philadelphia so her father could meet her kids for the first time. 
so I, I'd be curious to know it's five months from now and your evaluators have come back and, you know, you've shown that A, you know, no, no one's gone and used this money for some ill reason, you know, so you're refuting those claims and instead you're, you have not only stories, but quantitative data of how this money has been used in all sorts of ways to to build your premise. Um, what next? Any ideas about what you hope would happen next? You know, I know that these women are doing what it is that they need for themselves and their families, and it's just a beautiful it's beautiful just to have a very small part in that. As far as the Magnolia Mother's Trust as a whole, you know, what for us, we really were using this year as a pilot to really understand our model, to test the model, to say, okay, are we on to something here? Can we go about changing the narrative around low-income black women? Can we get a better understanding of how our social safety net system is working and make recommendations for how it could be reformed in order to better support the families that need those services the most? Um, and really, what's the impact of cash? You know, because we don't really like to talk about the impact of cash or to really understand what the impact of cash is. And so we're learning all of that this year. Um, and so for us, it really is to take what it is that we've done this year and replicate that in a much larger format. Because I know that I'm not naive. I know that 20 women is beautiful, but it's not enough to get to the larger piece of social system change reform, which is what we need if we really are going to be successful in alleviating or combating poverty within this country. So we are already looking forward and in a really ambitious fundraising um, cycle right now to say, okay, how do we re- how do we raise the resources necessary to replicate this year for the next three years and not just l- replicate it with 20 women, but replicate it with 50 women, where 50, what, excuse me, with 100 women, where 50 are receiving the resources and 50 are not and have a true quasi-experiment where we can look at the cost-benefit analysis, where we can really take an intricate look at some of the policies that are out there and make recommendations. So that's where we are and that's what we're thinking about is how do we do how do we continue to elevate the conversation and really get to the place where we can begin to move the needle um, on some of these policies that need to be shifted. We are seeing the impact that it's having not only for the individuals that we work with, but we truly do believe that it will have a much larger impact on society as a whole. Aisha Yandoro is the CEO of Springboard Opportunities in Jackson, Mississippi. She's leading the country in exploring how basic income can be a key strategy to helping people get on and stay on the pathway to lifelong success. I first spoke with Aisha during the first cycle of the Magnolia Mothers Trust Basic Income Initiative. Since then, funding came through for a second basic income initiative with a larger cohort of women. And then the virus hit. Well, we had the lottery for the Magnolia Mothers, the next iteration, the 11th of March. And on that Friday, the women got their first paycheck, uh, their first check. So that following week, we had several women, you know, and one in that following week, which was the first week of all of this, this was, we all were just an emotional mess. And I was holding it together pretty well until one of the moms called me and, you know, she's like, when are y'all going to let us know that we're not getting this money anymore because of the virus? And, you know, and I told her, I was like, oh, no. I was like, this isn't impacted by that. You will continue to get your money. 
every month on the 13th, just like we said, for a year. And she started crying. And in her crying, of course, I started crying. And she was just like, you know, I've already lost my job. And I just thought I was going to lose this too. She was like, you know, because of the idea that you would continue to get money for nothing when everything else is falling apart. Uh, But, you know, something she couldn't wrap her head around. I'm curious, you know, because you are absolutely right that what an amazing timing. Have you heard what what I imagine would be some really unfortunate stories for the women who were in the first cohort who who have this money and maybe now don't have it six months later with this hitting and anything on that that has been um, particularly telling that you've heard? No, and to me, this is the impact of cash without strings. And those women are okay, too, because they had a year to put a plan in place for themselves and their families. And so those women began to put the plans, and a year ago, they were doing what they needed to do to go back to school, to increase their income, to save, you know, to go into home ownership. So is their position as beneficial as it would be right now if they were getting the money? Of course not. But they are okay. They, you know, are not in dire straits already. A lot of them were able to get better jobs and to move out of these hourly wage jobs. And so from what we have been hearing from them as well, that they are also in this moment weathering the storm well. Once again, will that be the narrative two months from now, three months from now? Who knows? But I don't know what my narrative will be two months from now, three months from now. None of us do. To learn more about the work of Aishi Andoro and to find the initial report of the 12-month pilot working with 20 African-American mothers, go to springboard2.org. And to read more about my interviews with Aisha, go to the Finding Common Purpose blog at andrewwolk.com. Next time on Finding Common Purpose, another perspective on guaranteed income with Aaron Coltrera, the Research and Program Director at the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration an initiative by Mayor Tubbs in Stockton, California. Finding Common Purpose takes a look at what 21st century progress should look like, grounded in a simple idea. Success is a lifelong endeavor. I'm your host, Andrew Wolk. Doug Slaywin with Satellite Sounds Recording is our sound engineer, and Laura Spencer produced the show with help from Rachel McCarthy. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and if you enjoy what you heard, be sure to hit subscribe and leave a review. It's the best way to make sure our listeners find us. Thanks for listening to Finding Common Purpose.